The Senate defeats a bill to appoint the state superintendent. Speaker Brian Bosma gets challenged on the House floor. That, plus a parental consent bill and more on Indiana Week in Review for the week ending February 24th, 2017. Ice Miller is proud to support Indiana Week in Review. Ice Miller, with a 100-year tradition of learning what is important to clients and strategizing with them toward a common goal. Today, Ice Miller continues its commitment to help clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. This week, in a move that caught Republican leaders by surprise, the Senate rejected a bill to make the superintendent of public instruction an appointed rather than an elected position. Senate President Pro Tem David Long says he was surprised when Monday the Senate voted down legislation making the state superintendent an appointed position, a bill that's one of Governor Eric Holcomb's priorities. It surprised us that the author called it on third reading. It had not been discussed in caucus yet. The author didn't do a head count, you know, which would be normal, but he felt like he had the votes. And he got it, got it out of committee, and some people changed their votes. He didn't see that coming. You know, and so it was a bit of a surprise. Seventeen Republicans joined Democrats in voting against the measure. Senate rules bar legislation that's substantially similar to language that's been decisively defeated, which means the Senate can't consider the House's version of the bill unless, as Long suggests, the bill is altered to perhaps change the date of the switch or require qualifications of the appointed superintendent. The question really is whether our caucus wants to go through that process or not, and we haven't discussed that yet, and we will. And that will be a caucus decision on that bill. So we'll see what happens. Is the appointed superintendent bill once a foregone conclusion in trouble? It's the first question for our Indiana Week in Review panel. Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Mike O'Brien, John Schwannis, the host of Indiana Lawmakers, and John Katzenberger, president of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. I'm Indiana Public Broadcasting State House reporter Brandon Smith. Ann Delaney, will this bill make a comeback? Where there's a will, there's a way. And the question is, is the will there? I mean, this was one of the uh, pillars of, of Governor Holcomb's platform. I mean, the idea that they'd reject this, they'd reject the expansion he had in preschool education, they'd reject his attempt to try to get some uh, parameters around uh, ed education for, um, for uh, workforce development instead of having the myriad of agencies they have out there. They're rejecting everything he's putting forward. So it, it's pretty amazing from that point of view. I thought he'd get along with the legislature better than Mike Pence, but it doesn't appear to be. So, yeah, they could bring it back, and they need to bring it back. Otherwise, it's going to be readily apparent when we said last year or last session uh, when they tried to take Glenda uh, Ritz's elected position away from her because she was a Democrat, and they said it wasn't partisan, had nothing to do with partisan politics. Now you have a Republican in there, and suddenly they have second thoughts about it? Andalini, it's kind of hard to sell. Annalini brings up a good point. There were several major Holcomb initiatives that didn't go very well in particularly the state Senate this, this week. Does that reflect poorly on the governor? I don't think it does. I think, one, I think on the superintendent issue itself, this is an ancillary bill. The governor's agenda bill is House Bill 1005, which passed this week, an hour after the Senate rejected their own bill. Uh, it passed wholly, with bipartisan wholly, support. Wholly similar, though. I mean, they weren't substantial. Yeah but, it tells you, but, yeah, but one, I mean, you know from a process standpoint that if a bill passes one house, that language qualifies for the rest of the session. This issue is by no means dead. It'll, uh, you just need to get it to the end. So the question is, what do you do next? Do you, run it, do you try to run 1005 through the Senate, um, give them a second crack at it? Do you run it through the House again you, and through a Senate bill and send it back, or do you uh, just kind of hang on to it until the end when all these issues are going to be in play, whether it's pre-K? And all these things are still alive. I mean, none of this stuff's dead. 
Um, and they're all going to change. This is a long process. You know, no bill starts the process one way and ends exactly the way it was introduced. So this idea that the governor's agenda is on the ropes is just fake news. <laughs> or an alternative fact, maybe. Yeah, sure. <laughs> John and Mike have pointed out nothing is dead. And David Long said we're going to have to discuss this with our caucus whether they want to go through the steps to bring it back. Uh, Twenty-three twenty-six, which is what it lost by, is not a dramatic defeat. Um, is this coming back, and will this end up at the end of the session? I think uh, we will hear further discussion. A lot of this is how much political capital the governor does want to expend. Is this uh, an issue? You're right, it was one of his, what, five or six pillars, pillars that right. he spelled out. Is it the most critical element of his? I mean, is it the cornerstone of his agenda? No, I wouldn't think so. But, uh, and I don't think it, the uh, failure of this bill in and of itself spells disaster for the governor's agenda. In fact, my sense is, and this is more gut than anything, is that the General Assembly seems to be more amenable to the new governor at yeah. this point than uh, the preceding General Assemblies were to either Mitch Daniels or, or Mike, Mike Pence. Pence in their first sessions because both of those individuals came in with, I mean, very specific proposals about, in, for instance, Mitch's case. Uh, well, they both had very specific proposals, everything, you know, right. daylight saving time, tax cuts. Yeah, where's there that was, money coming from? And there was a lot of, there was time. pushback. My so basket's I, still empty. The long and short of it, I don't think it's, uh, <laughs> you can declare this a failed session for the governor's uh, yeah. agenda by any means. Uh, to, to, to hear the bill again in the Senate, on the Senate floor, it has to be substantially different. Uh, putting in qualifications for this position, would that be substantially different? Do you yeah, think that's the, I, Substantially different is also a term of art that can be determined by, you know, the Rules Committee and the, or the President Pro Tem. So, yeah, I think that if they decide they want to bring it back, they can. Mike makes a good point that there's a bill in the House that's moving. They can also decide to use that as a vehicle if they want. Um, I think it is interesting. I think John makes a good point that this governor really, relatively speaking, has been treated very well. But maybe they're hazing him a little bit, you know? Maybe they're <laughs> just saying, hey, you know, this is kind of the fun we're going to have. So we'll see. But I am surprised that, that the author put it on the floor and hadn't taken That's what happened. Remember the rules. That's what happened. Yeah. Let's underscore the notion of rules. The rules say you can only have, for instance, one subject matter in a well, bill. Well, yeah, they, yeah. they uh, ignore that, that quite if, a bit, too. We wouldn't have much uh, legislation enacted right. if that were uh, All right. needed. Time now for viewer feedback. Each week we pose an unscientific online poll question in conjunction with our Ice Miller email and text alerts. This week's question, should Indiana's superintendent of public instruction be appointed rather than elected? A, yes, or B, no. Last week's question, should Indiana eliminate its license requirement to carry a handgun? 16% say yes, 82 say no, and 2% say let's wait, let's wait for the results of that study committee. If you would like to take part in the poll, go to wfyi.org slash IWIR and look for the poll. A Republican lawmaker openly challenged Speaker Brian Bosma's authority on the House floor this week. The House was debating amendments to a bill allowing people protected by restraining orders to carry handguns without a license for up to 60 days. Representative Kurt Nisley offered an amendment that would eliminate Indiana's handgun license requirement entirely. The problem, there's an existing bill to do the same thing, and House rules preclude amendments that do the same thing a pending bill does. Now, Democrats do this sort of thing all the time, and Republicans block it, and Democrats challenge the Speaker's ruling that the amendment is disallowed. But this time, it was the Republican, Nisley, who challenged Bosma's ruling. Nisley's challenge couldn't get the backing of a single other lawmaker, something Bosma derisively and pointedly called out from his rostrum later that day. Mike O'Brien, I talked with lawmakers and longtime staffers who said they can't remember this sort of thing happening for a very long time. Is this the early seeds of a more serious challenge to Brian Bosma's leadership? No. 
Anything more? I'm not, I mean, they, 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 they <laughs> I'm represents not to give more analysis because it's so obvious that you don't do this. I mean, if I were the Democrats, I mean, I'm surprised they didn't just throw a second up there just for the fun of it. But I think they were so caught off guard that a Republican would challenge a Republican speaker in that way. There's a reason no one can remember why this is yeah. this ever happening. Um, <laughs> because you just don't do it, and because you find another way to be even less effective in the legislature if you if you do. Kurt Nisley represents. It's rep- hard is- for him to be less effective. <laughs> Well, but Kurt maybe Nisley, he's, you know, maybe that's his goal. Well, Kurt Nisley is 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 a member of, of of a more conservative wing of that caucus that is growing in size, it seems, with every election. And there are some of them who aren't always happy with the speaker with with Speaker Bosman's yeah, decisions. It's the same thing with with uh, Speaker Ryan in in Washington. It's not surprising there'd be divisions within the caucus. There are always divisions within each caucus. But the idea that that any revolt would be led by this particular representative is nonsense. I mean, he's an outlier. Uh, he really is. And he doesn't have a following. Um, he doesn't really have an agenda that relates to people. I mean, he, I think on his website, was saying that he was going to make government smaller. That has nothing to do with any of the things he's proposed while he's been in the legislature. Nothing to do with it at all. If anything, it reinforced so, Speaker Bosma's support from his own caucus. Because, because the other one's so disliked. Well, he constantly tacks so far outside of even what conservative members of, of, right. uh, of that caucus would want that, he, that you just, they just, no one can deal with him. Um, and so I think he came out of this stronger. I think he's going to sleep well this weekend, Speaker Bosman. Is this just an aberration, John? Uh, yeah, actually, what Mike just said is what my assessment of this was going to be, too. Um, I think that Representative Nisley, uh, you know, right after the election, um, putting in the hopper the abortion bill and making a big deal out of it and immediately saying that he wanted to bring up an issue that everyone knew would be divisive after the Speaker and other leaders had said that they want to get, stick to business um, was really, you know, the first poke in the eye of the Speaker. Um, and I think that this is, you know, a second attempt, and it got slapped down really maybe, hard. Do you think we could see... He, maybe he will actually then come forward and allow the districts to be drawn fairly by a commission so we can get rid of outliers like that. <laughs> not, what not do you think? Session. He has do, other ways. W- will we see reprisals for... any further reprisals for Kurt Nisley? Um, well, that suggests we've seen every reprisal that he has sustained or suffered. Some of those may be uh, ones we're unaware of, maybe happening behind closed doors, and and maybe Nisley doesn't even know yet what's uh, <laughs> what's coming. I th- I think the assessment that the gentlemen uh, across here have given is is exactly right. It's the old if you're a high school uh, or college football coach or basketball coach, and there might be some sense of tension or. You know, you want somebody misbehaving, you, you make an example out of that person, and after seven straight days of wind sprints, and, uh, <laughs> you know, everybody has uh, galvanized the around yeah. the, the well, coach. With, so I with think. Him, you might want to use target practice. But, well, but the, fact the, that, the fact that the caucus effectively remained uh, solidly uh, behind the speaker, I think, is exactly, uh, I'll echo what these guys said, that that probably leaves Brian Bosma in a stronger position. A Senate committee this week approved a bill to require parents be notified if their child seeks an abortion without exceptions. Indiana abortion law requires a child under age 18 to receive parental consent for an abortion. If the child doesn't want to inform her parents, she can go to court to receive a judicial waiver. A proposed bill would require the parents be notified of that judicial proceeding no matter what, meaning, as one lawmaker pointed out, if a father rapes his underage daughter and she wants an abortion, she'd have to notify her father first. The bill's backers say parents have the right to be involved in the process. Opponents say requiring notification could put children at risk and have a chilling effect on the entire process. During the three-plus-hour committee hearing, numerous technical concerns with the bill's language were raised, and committee leaders acknowledged several flaws, but they passed the bill anyway, pledging to fix its problems on the floor. 
John Ketzenberger, are you surprised to see a bill this riddled with issues advance? You know, it is, again, a matter of selective uh, memory. I can think of bills just this session where they said, no, we can't hear them because there are technical problems with them. The, the gerrymander, the, uh, the district districting bill was held in committee by that excuse by the chairman. Uh, yet this bill, which has so many obvious flaws, will work through it during the session and the process. Look, you can do that. Um, but I think that, that really what they're doing is advancing an agenda that we've seen a number of abortion bills uh, come up this year. And I think that this is the conservative wing of the Republican Party expressing itself and, and uh, you know, trying to get these things as far as they can because they want it to be known that that's their ultimate goal. Uh, amending something on the floor is never an easy process. Do you think they can get this bill to somewhere that it's at least not objectionable to even people who support the issue? Uh, no. I, I mean... With a bill on this topic, you're never going to satisfy everybody. That's, a, no. that's I think, an impossibility. Uh, you, can, you can deal with some of the, the technical issues and some of the, the problems, but you keep in mind that all of this is unfolding against the backdrop of a U.S. Supreme Court decision back in 1979 that says that parents, I mean, there's no ifs, ands, or buts, cannot veto the, uh, the decisions right. of, a, of an underage young lady. So, uh, yes, you can, there are different jurisdictional questions about uh, how, you, where you go to court, what you file, does it have to be notarized, you have to have a lawyer, and other, uh, lots of states have taken a different approach. But uh, this, is, this is an indication, as John suggests, that there is that wing of the party that feels passionate about these issues, and in some ways it relates to what we just talked about. Brian Bosma, I think, would, in leadership probably in both chambers, would just as soon focus on yeah. the non-social issues, issues the That's economic right. issues, but you have to have a pressure valve somewhere, and if you don't let anything ever out of committee you may not have the kind of solidarity that Brian Bosma, that we just discussed in the previous round of questions. Michael Bryan, should this bill have gotten out of committee? I think in general, for the, for the pro-life community, I think it benefits them uh, to really have it together, have these bills together and ready to go when they advance. They're controversial, but I mean, there's not even consensus among pro-life legislators about how to move forward on, on a couple of these abortion bills that are pending right now. Um, and it just ultimately hurts whatever outcome you're trying to trying to get to if you're a if you're a pro-life conservative. So uh, no, I don't think it should have. This is I mean we, we've seen abortion bills every single session, obviously for the last several 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 years. Is this sort of the result of you can only nibble nibble around the edges for so long? This and is you're... part of the radical right of the Republican Party raising money from groups that are intolerant of any views not their own. That's what this is about. They're birthers. They're not right to lifers. They're birthers. And there's a big difference in distinction because you see all the social network being peeled away from these people. They want them to be born, and then after that, they're on their own. This is unconstitutional. You always have to have a judicial escape valve. You actually are suggesting, they're actually suggesting that a girl raped by her father, which, trust me, happens quite a bit, a girl raped by her father has to get her, has to go tell her father that she's about to have an abortion? I mean, it's absolutely absurd on its face, and they ought to be ashamed of themselves for introducing it. I suspect we will talk about this bill again before the session is over. A legislative panel advanced a bill this week that would ensure public schools don't limit prayer and religious activity, and it's an effort led by some House Democrats. The legislation would require schools to allow students express religious beliefs in homework and artwork and ensure they can pray before, during, and after school. The bill's author is Indianapolis Democrat John Bartlett, who links a lack of prayer in schools to violence and other social problems. 
Other supporters point to issues like those experienced by the Right to Life Club at Carmel High School, which was ordered to take down a poster from the halls. But while some members of the House Democratic Caucus support the bill, others, like Ed Delaney, say it's unnecessary and could even threaten existing practices of schools allowing prayer. John Schwannis, are you surprised to see this bill from a Democrat? Uh, it's not where you might expect it to arise, given the conversation we just talked about, the, the more conservative, uh, fundamentalist wing of, of the party. But these are, these are feelings that you see uh, prop up on both sides of the aisle. And, uh, you know, the, the issue here is that, uh, and as Ann's husband pointed out uh, in the discussion, uh, Representative Ed Delaney, again, there's not, nothing is barred, no one is barred from doing anything that this ostensibly would allow. Kids can pray quietly, even on the, the football field before a game. If you, the team wants to pray, as long as the coach and the employees and the representatives of the school district or, or the pray. administration don't do it. And so what you do here, if, if, you, if you basically try to codify rights that are already guaranteed by the First Amendment, you've got to go to some task force or panel within the Department of Education to come up with guidelines. And if, you, if, if school administrators think they have headaches now... <laughs> This will be a constant migraine from, from here to eternity because it, what happens when the first church of cannabis, which Bill Levin founded here in Indianapolis back in 2015, uh, pans out T-shirts to parishioners and somebody shows up with a marijuana leaf in, in or class. Or hands out marijuana cigarettes. And, of course, the statute says you, you have can't, to allow you that have, Or what happens when, the, when Muslim students want to bring prayer mats and have uh, yeah. organized prayer. This... this uh, the First Amendment does quite well in this regard. I guess we don't really so need to improve need on help? it. It doesn't need any help. I think the First Amendment is just fine. As well, we, lawmakers and, and folks like to throw this term around a lot, but is this truly a bill in search of a problem <laughs> or a solution in search of a problem? Yeah, I'd like to see Bill Evans show up with a T-shirt or maybe the Pastafarians would show up. It's absolutely <laughs> a bill searching for a problem that doesn't exist. However, I will say I think it's interesting. Maybe it's a coincidence, maybe not. Uh, in Carmel, a school where they had uh, ordered a pro or an anti-abortion group to take down a poster has allowed it to go back up. And, and it happened about the same time as this bill was being considered. So it's not, it, it is an unsettled issue, and there are concerns around uh, for this. But, you know, John's absolutely right. This is, this is um, uh, the legislature making a statement uh, on a problem that really doesn't exist. Ed Delaney suggested this could actually create problems in that you, you, might, it might risk, you might risk a lawsuit that would shut down things that are currently happening. It's absolutely the case. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. The legislature ought to be focusing on jobs and infrastructure, okay, instead of this. If this is all they want to talk about, they ought to go home because they're doing more harm in this regard and the abortion law and the, all the other stuff that they're messing around with. They're doing more harm than good. They're not fixing a problem. They're creating problems. I, I mentioned at the top this is led by, uh, the bill is authored by a House Democrat. It's supported by some of the House Democratic caucus and particularly from um, particularly members of the Black Legislative Caucus. And they say that, that part of the reason they're pushing it is they believe that if you if you have more prayer in schools, that this will deal with some of the societal ills that they see in their communities. Do they have a point? Well, sure. Um, I think, and I think there are religious people on both sides of the aisle, right? <laughs> so I'm not, it's not a surprise at all that and non-religious people, and not religious people on both sides of the aisle. That's, that's exactly right. Um, 
you know, I think people ought to continue to be free to, um, or kids ought to continue to be free to exercise this in their own way. We have, in my family, um, my wife's Jewish and I'm Lutheran, and so navigating religion for us is a little more complicated than it is for most families. But and I'd want my kids to be able to go to school and express that in a, in, a, in kind of that intellectual setting, or use examples, or um, be free to um, pray quietly on their own, but and not be compelled to do it for one religion. Or yeah, that's, that's, that's the key. Here. That's the key. I mean, everybody in school now can pray quietly on their own. There's no prohibition before a test or anything else. And it, they're right to the extent that to the extent that religious doctrine, whatever the faith might be, can be in, instilled in people in, in children younger. It may affect conduct, but forcing kids right. to do it is where the rubber hits the road. Well, I think they're right. A little more uh, reflection right now in politics is probably a, uh, probably a good thing. <laughs> Could you start at the top, perhaps? <laughs> maybe this is what they meant by school choice and the voucher program. I thought if you, yeah, don't, maybe that's if you want to pray in a formal setting, go to a private school. I thought I was wrapping Senate, up the conversation. A Senate committee advanced a bill this week that sanctions the use of so-called baby boxes in hospitals. Just one week after the same language couldn't get support for a vote in that same committee. Indiana has two existing baby boxes, both in firehouses. The boxes are meant to be a more anonymous way for someone to leave an unwanted newborn. The Department of Child Services, DCS, has questioned their legality. Senate Republican Travis Holdman's amendment to legalize baby boxes in hospitals failed to get support for a vote last week. But this week, Holdman offered the same amendment, and it passed unanimously, as did the overall bill. Holdman says full support came after he spoke more with committee members who weren't fully briefed last week. And Holdman acknowledges that his bill isn't language DCS loves or likes or might even be able to live with. Last week, DCS didn't oppose the amendment, but said baby boxes need stricter standards than it provides. The agency did not address the committee this week. Mike O'Brien, should lawmakers be pushing ahead with something that doesn't have DCS's obvious support? Well, I think DCS needs to continue to be a part of the conversation. I think they will be. Um, I think it's early in the process, and um, there's still plenty of time for this, uh, this debate to move forward. This seems like, on its face, a pretty good idea. We want to make it just a little easier for women to safely drop off babies as, as, instead of just dumping them somewhere. But it's also pushed by members of, of the Right to Life movement up in northeast Indiana. Does that color how this bill is perceived at all? I don't know if it colors how the bill is perceived. I think the DCS and the governor's office, by extension, because DCS wouldn't do it if the governor didn't agree, uh, are right on this. We have mechanisms in place now. You can drop a baby at a hospital. You don't have to have a box to put the baby in. I mean, this is the perfect example of another piece of legislation the legislature ought to stay out of. Okay, They don't know what's best in this regard, and they ought to just leave it alone and get to the fundamental problems this, face, this state faces instead of creating problems and then solving them all in this, or trying to solve them, all in the same legislation. It's nonsense. That seems to be a theme from you this week. It, am I wrong? I mean, look at those bills. John, uh, do you expect this bill to keep advancing pretty easily, or is it going to come to a screeching halt at some point? I suspect at some point it's going to come to a screeching halt, and there will be some rational thought put into this. But I do think it's, incons- <laughs> I think it's interesting that it's, it's um, you know, this is, this is the same caucus. These people who are pushing the bill are in the same caucus that proclaim they want less government, less regulation, and they want to, you know, regulate this down to the, to the receptacle the the for box, the... Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. and I just... I just think that that's more than I can handle sometimes. So far, so far, DCS has has said, well, if you're going to pass, the, if you're going to legalize these boxes in hospitals, there need to be strict regulations. They haven't said we support. They haven't said we oppose. Do they need to assert? Does the does the governor and DCS need to assert themselves a little more in this process? 
Again, they may be doing so behind the scenes. Keep in mind, we don't know everything, every conversation that's going on, and sometimes the most effective arm twisting is that which occurs outside the, uh, the spotlight, the public spotlight. Uh, I think what, if you're DCS, probably if you really uh, just said, what can we do to solve the problem, it's increase the funding that we have so we can hire more people and get more people They are out. getting a $100 million increase in the budget. So, And how much well, of that goes to the boxes? I, no, I let's let's uh, see where it ends up. Yeah, yeah that's true. Let's see that's what happens if there's, uh, God forbid, liability. If something happens with the use of one of those boxes and right. the baby doesn't make it. And then, right, I mean, yeah. you, but where do you stop? Do you put a which copy why, of Ten Commandments inside the box? Which is why a lot of hospitals are sort of balking. The trial can start. All right. Finally, the Indy 11, the Indianapolis pro soccer team, is making a bid to join Major League Soccer, this country's top league. A recent analysis of its bid was somewhat favorable. And, Delaney, leaving out the sports side, which I guess you probably don't care much about, would this be good economically now, now, for the city? Now, wait a second. All right. Last weekend, I went to two NCAA games. Two, right. okay? So I like sports. So I all like the sports questions the, are now going I to you? I like it in the amateur <laughs> arena. But right. actually, I think if they could join the league, it would be good for economic development. For uh, the they city. had a, a As long as we don't have to pay completely for the, for the new There field. it is. The stadium is, is the big caveat here. Do you think something like that can get through the General Assembly? I think this gives a new life, and I think this is exactly the kind of thing that Indianapolis can, can rally around. I'm going to an, Indy, in, to an Indy Fuel game this weekend, and it's like the best deal going in town. It's awesome. I mean, this, this, Indy 11 are great. I mean, they're just there's a lot of fun uh, stuff happening around the city, and amateur sports Indy and Fuel professional sports. sold out. That's right. John Schwannis, would this be a good – do you think Indianapolis can support a Major League Soccer team? It probably can support a Major League Soccer team. It'll be interesting to see how existing franchises uh, – view this. So you have, uh, for instance, the Chicago Fire and you have the uh, Columbus. Columbus crew, right. and they all have their academy territories for training and fan-based development. So this arguably cuts into their turf. It'll be interesting to see what happens. It's about time right. Indiana players played in Indiana. <laughs> That's Indiana Week in Review for this week. Our panel is Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Mike O'Brien, John Schwannis of Indiana Lawmakers, and John Katzenberger of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. If you'd like a podcast of this program, you can find it at wfyi.org slash iwir, or starting Monday, you can stream it or get it on demand from Xfinity. I'm Brandon Smith of Indiana Public Broadcasting. Join us next time, because a lot can happen in an Indiana week. Ice Miller is proud to support Indiana Week in Review. Ice Miller, with a 100-year tradition of learning what is important to clients and strategizing with them toward a common goal. Today, Ice Miller continues its commitment to help clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com.